welcome to the Take Control of Your Wealth podcast. I'm Shauna Perron. And I'm Christy Matwe, and together we help people gain the knowledge, skills, resources, confidence, and inspiration to build optimal and enduring wealth. So if you're ready to create financial freedom, to be able to do what you want, when you want, without worry about yours or your family's future, then turn up the volume and let's get started with our latest program to help you take control of your wealth. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. This podcast is going to focus on investment policy statements, including what they are and why you might need one. They are commonly used within the private client, high net worth, charity, and institutional space, but can be a tool for anyone to help lay the foundation for your investment strategy and keep you on course over time. Right. So what is an investment policy statement? Remember from our episode on asset allocation that your strategic asset allocation is the core mix of equities and fixed income that makes sense for your unique situation over the long term. The investment policy statement is typically a written document that clearly communicates an investor's needs and risk tolerance and defines the strategic asset allocation that will help them achieve their goals. Yes, it's like a roadmap and preparing one forces you to understand why you're investing, what your restrictions are, and helps lead you to the most appropriate asset allocation to ultimately guide the actions of the investment manager. Now, you might be wondering who prepares the investment policy statement. For an institutional investor, it might be the investment manager, a consultant, or even the institution itself. But for an individual, it's often the investment manager based on discussions with the client because most individuals don't know where to start, particularly when it comes to defining the asset mix. Yeah, if you don't have an investment policy statement and you're wondering why nobody's prepared one for you or at least talked to you about the pertinent areas, it may be because of the way your portfolio is managed. They are commonly prepared by portfolio managers who make investment decisions on a discretionary basis on behalf of their clients based on an in-depth understanding of their situation. That's right. As discretionary portfolio managers, we are held to high standards and have a fiduciary duty to act on our clients' best interest. And clearly, to make decisions on behalf of clients that are in their best interest, we need to be able to articulate what those interests are, and we need an agreed-upon plan for how the portfolio will be managed. So it's critical to have something like this in these situations, but they're never a bad idea. Now, we're going to focus on a few key components of an investment policy statement that are applicable regardless of who the investor might be. They include the investor profile, the investment objectives, and the investment constraints. In other words, who you are, what are you trying to achieve, and what are the appropriate risks or restrictions that need to be considered when it comes to managing your portfolio. There may be other sections, particularly for an institution, such as monitoring and reviewing procedures, duties and responsibilities, etc. But we are going to focus on the core components. So when we define the investment objectives, we need sufficient background to understand the context for what the portfolio needs to accomplish. The investor profile will provide that by describing who the client is, what their situation and financial makeup are, the source of their capital, and importantly, what is the purpose of this money? It would include information such as the client's age, marital status, dependents, employment situation, assets, debt, income, whether they earned the money from employment or inherited it, or maybe they sold a business or real estate, what their plans are for the future, and generally anything that is relevant to understand the purpose for investing. So for example, are they looking to grow the portfolio to fund future retirement, create a family legacy to pass on to future generations? preserve capital to pay off a mortgage, generate income to live on, or maybe the investor has everything they need and just need to preserve their purchasing power and keep up with inflation. 
Whatever the goal or goals might be, once they are clearly defined, the specific investment objectives are easier to articulate. They take into consideration not only the need for return to achieve the goals, but also the risk involved in doing so, keeping in mind that aiming for higher return typically comes with higher risk. So if there are conflicting objectives, such as maximizing returns and minimizing risk, we need to decide which is most important and likely find some balance between the two in order to select appropriate investments. Yeah, that's right. We'll talk more about risk shortly, but once we've described who the client is and what their objectives are, the next component is the applied constraints. Common constraints include the time horizon, liquidity needs, tax considerations, legal or regulatory requirements, and any other unique circumstances. Now, the time horizon is really important. It refers to the length of time before you'll need to use a substantial portion of the invested assets. Say all the money you have is to be used for the down payment of a house in two years. Then your time horizon is two years. Practically speaking, though, most people have expenses over time that don't necessarily define their time horizon. For example, someone nearing retirement will soon begin to withdraw to fund living expenses, but the withdrawals aren't often more than a few percent of the total portfolio annually, and if the portfolio is intended to last their lifetime, the investor may still have a long time horizon. Now, liquidity is the ability to quickly convert investments into cash. If your capital is fully invested, it's important to know how likely it is you'll need to access money quickly. When you sell stocks, the trade will settle in a few days, so they are technically considered liquid assets. But you don't want to have to sell on unfavorable terms, so the greater the liquidity needs, the greater the need for investments to be less volatile. That's right. So liquidity needs are closely related to the time horizon. Investors with a short time horizon or high liquidity needs can't tolerate a lot of risk because you don't want to be forced to sell your investments if they're down, and that might mean owning less equity and more fixed income. Remember that with equities, you're typically looking for future growth of the company, which can take time to play out and be reflected in the stock price, and there may be volatility along the way. Yes. And next is taxation. While not a concern for some institutions, tax considerations might impact how a portfolio is managed for individual investors. It would be important to understand things like the investor's tax bracket, whether there are unrealized capital gains that need to be managed or tax loss carry forwards to consider, for example. You also know from our previous episode, Stocks and Bonds, that interest, dividends, and capital gains are all taxed differently in Canada, and that may impact which account should hold certain investments. And then there might be legal and regulatory constraints to consider. This is more likely to be the case with an institution, but with individual investors, for example, someone might be an insider of a public company. Maybe they're on the senior management team or board of directors. In that case, there are very strict laws that apply to buying and selling that company's stock, which need to be clearly set out and taken into consideration at all times. Yeah, for sure. And finally, any unique needs and preferences would be documented. Sometimes constraint can be as simple as not wanting to own a specific company or type of company, such as a tobacco producer or one that harms the environment. Or perhaps someone receives stock or stock options from their employer, and it doesn't make sense to buy more of that stock in their portfolio. So the constraints, the time horizon, liquidity needs, taxation, legal and regulatory factors, as well as any unique needs and preferences will set boundaries for what investments can be considered. And from there, the asset allocation would be specified, taking into consideration the investor's objectives in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and the level of risk that makes sense. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about risk. How do you know what your risk tolerance is? It's easier to think about breaking it down into three components. 
the investor's willingness, ability, and need to take on risk. The willingness refers to how comfortable you are with volatility and how prepared you are to see potential declines in your portfolio. This is really important because if volatility is going to make you panic and sell all your investments when they're down, that's a problem because you might be locking in losses and really hurting yourself in the long run by preventing the portfolio from recovering. The ability to take on risk looks at a complete financial picture, including income, asset, debt, time horizon, liquidity needs, and other factors to determine an investor's ability to tolerate volatility and still maintain their standard of living. Remember, a longer time horizon and lower liquidity needs will typically allow an investor to take on more risk because they are less likely to have to sell when the portfolio might be down, and over the long term, the portfolio has more of a chance to recover. For example, if a 30-year-old would like to invest in 100% equity, there's higher risk, but they might have a good-paying job, a secure and sustainable lifestyle, and significant annual savings, making it unlikely that a market decline would affect their way of life. They don't plan to use the money until retirement, so they have a long time horizon, low liquidity needs, and therefore high ability to take on risk. Mm -hmm. However, if a 70-year-old wanted to invest in 100% equity, and they are already in retirement with their investments being their sole source of income, it's a different story. If the markets were to sell off significantly and they don't have the ability to reduce their withdrawals, they might be locking in losses and hurting the ability of the portfolio to recover, which could impact their lifestyle depending on the size of the portfolio to begin with. So they might have lower ability to take on risk. And lastly, what is the actual need to take on risk? Are you dependent on a certain rate of return to grow the portfolio so you can retire? Or are you dependent on a certain level of income to support your lifestyle? Understanding the actual need is critical because it usually doesn't make sense to take on more risk than you actually need to achieve your goals. Sometimes we hear people say they want a higher return, but do they actually need it? If not, why put your nest egg at risk? Yeah, putting the investor's willingness, ability, and need together will help define what level of risk is appropriate for the portfolio. And matching this risk profile with the investment objectives and constraints starts to shape what the strategic asset allocation should be. And one other point to note on risk is that sometimes the willingness, ability, and need are in conflict. We see people who are willing to take on risk for the possibility of a higher return, but don't have an ability or need to do so. And we also see people who are not willing to take on risk, but in fact need to in order to achieve their goals, so might need to get comfortable with some volatility. The bottom line is that there is a lot to consider and often a fine balancing act that takes place. And so once it's done, do you set it and forget it? No. As we talked about in our episode on asset allocation, the appropriate strategic asset allocation will change over time depending on the investor's situation. So the investment policy statement needs to be reviewed to make sure it continues to make sense, particularly after any major life event such as divorce, retirement, changing jobs, or selling your home. That's right. To summarize, the investment policy statement is like the frame of your house. It builds structure and shapes the portfolio for exactly your needs and risk tolerance. You can't just start with the asset mix. It's important to think through what you're really trying to accomplish to ensure that the portfolio ultimately achieves its goals. It can also be referred to when you're tempted to adjust your asset mix based on market conditions. It will remind you of why you're invested like that to begin with and help keep you on course over time. Absolutely. And as always, thank you to our listeners. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and we look forward to connecting with you and helping you take control of your wealth. Remember everyone, don't settle, take control of your wealth. You can find more information by visiting our website, takecontrolofyourwealth.ca or by following us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Take Control of Your Wealth. 
We look forward to connecting with you.